0: Okay, so this afternoon I'd like to continue our exploration of the theme of this retreat, which is using the lens of the Four Noble Truths to transform our relationship to Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. And it's possible that for some of you, you might be feeling like you've heard quite enough about Dukkha, thank you, and you're all ready to... ready to move on, to move beyond to something a bit more pleasant or uplifting. So if that's true for you, you might take a moment to see if you can meet that unsatisfactoriness or dukkha that's arisen right now in this moment and see if you can meet it with kindness rather than resistance. And then it becomes an opportunity, again in the moment, to experience release. This movement that I brought in yesterday, the always is the possibility to shift from clinging to release. Whenever we remember to let go of resistance and instead open to what is. So coming back to this first noble truth as a reminder, this is how the Buddha defined dukkha in the very first discourse that he gave after his awakening. And this time it's based on a translation by Bhikkhu Bodhi. So using these different translations, you might hear slightly different nuances from the language. It says, Now this, practitioners, is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. So again, there's a lot in that passage we could spend the whole rest of this retreat exploring it. But for now, just to highlight that the Buddha starts with the basic biological challenges of being human. Because we have a body, every one of us is subject to the dukkha of being born, of getting old, of getting sick, and of dying. And of course, we know that on an intellectual level. But when it comes to really knowing it in our bones, knowing it in our moment to moment experience, most of us have a pretty instinctive recoil from that truth. And right there, we've moved from physical dukkha into psychological dukkha. And this is the next type of suffering that the Buddha identified, having to be with what's unpleasant is suffering. So then there's the suffering of what is what in this context he's... um, Translated as separation from what is pleasing or dissociation from the pleasant. And then the opposite, not getting what one wants. This too is dukkha. And then he summarizes it again with that definition. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging as suffering. And those are the five aggregates that I touched into yesterday afternoon in the relational practice when we started practicing with how clinging and release can be experienced very directly in the body. We're going to continue that exploration of the five aggregates soon. But for now, just to acknowledge, it's not pleasant to hear the truth of Dukkha laid out so boldly. So again, you might just notice what's your inner relationship now to that truth. And if there is resistance, see if you can reconnect with the understanding that the point of doing this is to help us to move beyond Dukkha, to find genuine contentment, satisfaction and peace. But to get there, we can't just bypass Dukkha, we have to get to know it in all its various manifestations. So that definition I gave gives us some fairly basic, obvious, gross forms of suffering. But elsewhere in the teaching, the Buddha also pointed to some more subtle forms of it. Some that perhaps even at first glance might not even be recognizable as suffering. So some of you might know that dukkha is also One of what are known as the three universal characteristics of experience. And in this context, the Buddha used the same word dukkha to refer to one of these characteristics. So these three are common to everything we experience. And the first one is anicca impermanence, the understanding that everything changes. Now, of course, this change is happening at different rates for different objects and different experiences, but there is nothing in this world that is stable, permanent, and unchanging. Everything comes into being, stays for a while, and passes away. And understanding this impermanence very directly in our immediate experience is a key insight in Vipassana practice. And it's pointed to in the refrain from the Satipatthana Sutta that Julie quoted recently. I'll read it again as a reminder. Um, This refrain, as she said, appears 14 times throughout the Sutta in relation to each of the four establishments of mindfulness. But I'll read you the refrain in relation to the body, seeing as that's what we're focusing on this afternoon. One abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body or one abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body or one abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness and one abides independent not clinging to anything in the world. So we see the direct pointing to this understanding of Anicca impermanence. And because of that impermanence, because nothing lasts, because everything is unstable, unreliable, it's not capable of providing lasting satisfaction. And this instability gives rise to the second universal characteristic, which is dukkha. And here in this context, it's usually translated as unsatisfactoriness or sometimes unreliability rather than suffering. So in this context, even pleasant experiences can be classified as dukkha because they too will pass away. They arise, they stay for a while, But at some point they disappear, and then we're left chasing after the next hit of pleasantness. So seeing this clearly is another key aspect of insight, of seeing that frees. Because when we very deeply understand that nothing is capable of giving us lasting happiness, it's easier to rest in equanimity, the heart-mind that is free from wanting and free from not Wanting. And then just for the sake of completeness, the third universal characteristic is anatta, usually translated as not-self. And this is the point where I sometimes wish that the Buddhist teachings weren't quite so comprehensive. Because there's so much in each of these topics that I'm touching into. Each of them really deserves a whole talk or three of its own. And so I just want to apologize, apologize in advance for sort of skimming over the surface, but we'll be coming back to many of these key concepts and understandings many times during this retreat. So for now, just to say that Anatta refers to the fact that there's no solid, fixed, permanent, unchanging soul or essence that we could call me at the center of this all of these experiences. So I'll leave it there for now to continue with our exploration of Dukkha. And again, that it covers a whole spectrum of experience. And in some ways, the Buddha was inviting us to become a connoisseur of Dukkha, to become familiar with it, to recognize its characteristics, to study it in detail, to become intimate, with it as kind of the raw material of our experience not as an exercise in masochism, but so we can understand more clearly how to free ourselves from it. And that's what makes the first noble truth noble. We're not wallowing in suffering for its own sake, but when we deeply understand dukkha it's what sets us free. So In perhaps a slightly perverse way, we can think of dukkha as a gift, because when we learn how to relate to it in the right way, it offers us a powerful opportunity to deepen wisdom and compassion. And through that process, the heart and mind become increasingly free of afflictive states. Now, at first, the idea of dukkha as a gift might sound counterintuitive, because We can look around the world, our communities, our families, in ourselves. We can see plenty of suffering, sometimes terrible suffering. And if suffering was all it took, then we would be free. But what makes Dukkha liberative is the way we relate to it. And that's what we're focusing on in this retreat, transforming our relationship to Dukkha. So bringing the willingness to learn what it has to teach us. So the Buddha gives this definition of dukkha that covers the physical, the psychological, the relational domains of life. And then he summarizes it again as in brief, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. So again, just as I pointed to yesterday, this idea of clinging, grasping, identifying with, taking personally, holding on or resisting, these are all aspects of an unhealthy relationship to experience that tend to amplify our suffering. And then the opposite, the more we can disidentify, disentangle, not struggle, open to and accept, These are all aspects of release. So I'd like to zoom in a little more again into the body, which is included in the first of these five clinging aggregates. So again, the Buddha named these as five aspects of experience where we do tend to commonly get caught. So the first one is rupa, R-U-P-A, material form, Includes all physical matter and our own bodies. I'm going to highlight our bodies because that's one area that many of us really cling to and identify with strongly. There is just a basic biological delusion that I am my body. It's me. It's mine. It's who I am. And then on top of that basic delusion, we add the further delusion that my body is solid it's permanent, and it's completely under my control. So as an antidote to that, in the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, we're invited to know the body from within, directly in our immediate experience, instead of our usual habit of thinking about it, usually as an object under our control. So instead, with mindfulness of the body, we get to practice knowing all of our physical experiences arising and passing away without adding our usual reactions, assessments, judgments, and so on. So I'd like to read you the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta. And I've changed the language to be gender-neutral. And the word bhikkhu, which sometimes is translated as monastic, also means practitioner, so that's the word I'll use here because it includes any of us. Here, practitioners, in regard to the body, a practitioner abides contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. Mindfulness that there is the body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body. So it might sound very simple, but especially for those brought up in dominant mainstream culture, we've been conditioned to separate the body and the mind. And remembering that the term clinging can also refer to resisting, ignoring, denying. Most of us have been trained to privilege the intellect over the body. And in this hierarchy, the body is seen as inferior sometimes just a kind of a dumb appendage that transports the brain from A to B. And similarly, many of us these days have been trained to to relate to ourselves as kind of machines or computers. And we treat ourselves as if we should be able to just stop and start and plug and unplug at will. And we override the basic biological nature of our bodies and that also creates more stress, distress, and suffering. So most of us need to train in developing a wiser, more sane relationship to our bodies, to live in harmony with the truth of the body's impermanence and vulnerability, instead of denying it. Now, on one level, we do have a very primal survival instinct, that wants to protect our physical bodies. That's completely natural. So it's not surprising that when we're reminded of the body's impermanence and its vulnerability, it can be quite disturbing. But the more we can train in gradually accepting the body's fragile nature, the less we suffer. So we cling to the delusion that our bodies are solid and invulnerable. We cling to the delusion that our bodies are permanent, not susceptible to aging, illness and death. And these delusions, this clinging shows up clearly when those delusions are threatened by reality. So we can look at all the myriad ways that we resist the truth of our bodies impermanence by trying to hold on to our youth our health, our physical attractiveness, our fitness, our sexual energy. We can see this individually, perhaps, in ourselves. We see it on a society-wide scale, the preference for youth and beauty and fitness and sexual attractiveness, and how that shows up in the media and in advertising And all the multi-billion dollar industries such as cosmetics and plastic surgery and bodybuilding and pharmaceuticals and medical tourism and so on. All the infinite ways that we're exhorted to try to control and enhance our bodies through diet and exercise and makeup and procedures. Now, this doesn't mean that therefore we're supposed to just stop and neglect our health and not take care of it and not take care of our bodily hygiene or grooming. It's not the activities themselves that are the problem. Again, it's the clinging to them that's the issue. So if there's an unconscious belief that if I can just paint the perfect face or sculpt the perfect body then I'll live happily ever after. That leads to immense suffering when the body doesn't obey. Eventually, inevitably, ages, gets injured, gets sick, and, of course, eventually dies. So again, the way out of this suffering is through. So wisdom here is about training now, to come into more direct contact with the body's impermanence. And if we pay attention, we see very clearly physical sensations are constantly changing. It's only our ideas or concepts about the body that are static. So for example, right now, if you close your eyes for a moment and bring awareness to your hand, whichever hand is dominant, doesn't matter, what do you actually experience in that part of the body that's normally labelled as hand? You might perhaps be overlaying that experience with a visual image or a memory of where we think the hand should be, but if you can let go of that, probably all you'll actually find are sensations, perhaps tingling or warmth, Pressure, hardness, softness, twitching, coolness, and so on. Is that true? Did anybody find a thing they could call hand? Or was it more just an interplay of these different sensations constantly changing? And this is true of the whole body. There's nothing unchanging, solid or controllable that we can find anywhere in the body that we can say definitively is my body. And the Buddha was very explicit about this training in seeing the body's insubstantial nature. So in the Fena Sutta, he uses an analogy comparing the first aggregate of material form to a lump of foam. So remembering that material form includes the body, this is what he said. On one occasion the Buddha was staying among the Ayojans on the banks of the Ganges River. There he addressed the monastics. Suppose that a large glob of foam were floating down this Ganges River and a person with good eyesight were to see it observe it, and appropriately examine it. To that person, seeing it, observing it, appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance could there be in a glob of foam? In the same way, a monastic sees, observes, and appropriately examines any form, such as the body, To that monastic, seeing it, observing it, appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance could there be in foam? So what the Buddha is pointing to here is something that has only quite recently been recognized by modern science. And nowadays we have high-tech instruments such as the electron scanning microscope. And scientists have been able to document this body's radical insubstantiality and changeability. And I'd like to read you a description of what scientists have been discovering because to me it captures something of the mystery and the magnific- magnificence of our own organic nature. It says, The electron scanning microscope with the power to magnify several thousand times, takes us down into a realm that has the look of the sea about it. As the magnification increases, the flesh begins to dissolve. Muscle fiber now takes on a fully crystalline aspect. We can see that it is made of long spiral molecules in orderly array, And all of these molecules are swaying like wheat in the wind, connected with one another and held in place by invisible waves that pulse many trillion times a second. What are these molecules made of? As we move closer, we see atoms, the tiny, shadowy balls, dancing around their fixed locations in the middle of the molecules, sometimes changing position with their partners in perfect rhythm. And now we focus on one of the atoms. Its interior is lightly veiled by a cloud of electrons. We come closer, increasing the magnification. The shell dissolves and we look on the inside to find nothing. Somewhere within that emptiness we know is a nucleus, We scan the space, and there it is, a tiny dot. At last, we have discovered something hard and solid, a reference point. But no, as we move closer to the nucleus, it too begins to dissolve. It too is nothing more than an oscillating field, waves of rhythm. Inside the nucleus are other organized fields protons, neutrons, even smaller particles. Each of these, upon our approach, also dissolves into pure rhythm. Of what is the body made? It is made of emptiness and rhythm. At the ultimate heart of the body, at the heart of the world, there is no solidity. Once again, There is only the dance. So fortunately, as meditators, we don't need an electron microscope to understand the body in that way. If we develop enough mindfulness and unification of mind, sati and samadhi, we can know the body's lack of solidity and its radical impermanence very directly in our own experience. This clear seeing into the truth of anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unreliability, not-self, is the doorway into transformative wisdom that helps us to let go of clinging and release into peace. So that's what we're doing here in this retreat and this afternoon.